Welcome back to Reading for a Change for part two of our conversation about loving our enemies. A very Christian thing to do, I would hope. I'm joined again by my co-host, author Hannah Anderson, and our guest, Dan White Jr., author of the book, Love Over Fear. Last time we were talking about why we're so scared, why there's so much fear, why we're so polarized, especially in this particular moment. I'd love to discuss now some practical solutions to this huge problem. But first, I want to address some of the real struggles that we have, the barriers that we encounter when we get serious about trying to love people on the other side of the ideological aisle. So Dan, here's my first question for you. What do you say to people, because I've had a lot of conversations with folks that they paint the other side as being evil, right? We've heard this. You've already you've already shared some stories where that is present. So it's it's a conservative saying, those godless liberals, they they just want to take God out of the public square. Um they they, they want to murder babies, they um they want to persecute Christians. Um on the other side, the rhetoric uh is almost a mere opposite, um, where you know Christians want to take away my rights. Um they're warmongers, perhaps, which is weird, but that's often uh, deservingly so the objection we get. Um, and, and, and the thing is, some of, of those concerns often have a basis in reality, right? Um, if, if you're passionate about some of these causes and, and issues, um, so how do you thread that needle? You want to humanize the other side, but at the same time, you can't just discount the concerns that, that people have about folks in other camps. Does that make sense? My, in, there was a pilot group that I led uh, here locally. Um, it was a cross-politics uh, pilot group where I brought people together uh, um, across the divides and across um, issues of sexuality and immigration. And, and there were these two themes that came out um, around fear and evil and threat that conservatives in the room felt like to move towards their political enemy, to actually befriend them, felt like moral compromise. Just the baby step, I mean, just wow. any overture towards them felt like they were compromising. And for the progressives in the room, uh, they felt like any overture or baby step towards conservatives felt like complicity. For, to injustice. And so these, these emotions cause us to not, not even, you know, not even move towards each other one inch. Um, this really, this really reminds me a lot of my own marriage, to be honest with you. I mean, you've probably been in an argument uh, with uh, your husband or wife and at some moment in the argument, you realize, I realize she's got a little bit of truth that I agree with. But I don't want to affirm it because I'm afraid if I affirm it, she's going to take a mile, right? She's <laughs> yep, you know, I've, been there. And so this is what happens. And this is actually Carl Jung says this is this is our adolescent mind, is that we we regress to being adolescents in the face of differences where we can't even identify any goodness in our at that moment enemy because we're afraid that they might win, and so we get stuck in these false choices. Um, 
So for me, I don't, I don't really like to use the categories of evil or dangerous. I don't like to say that someone is all evil or that, that people group, all Trump voters are dangerous or all, um, you know, all, I don't, those binaries really shut down my ability to uh, see um, the beauty in, in another, the image of God in another. Okay, let me just push back a little bit, though. What what about a group? I mean, yeah, I can see that when you're saying about, okay, Republicans, Democrats, um, liberals, conservatives. What if you're talking about, like, neo-Nazis, though? I mean, some groups that just by their definition, their raison d'etre is, is some sort of abhorrent cause. I had the joy of interviewing Daryl Davis, who is a uh, an activist, a black activist, whose father was uh, murdered by the KKK. Um, and he has been befriending KKK members uh, for the last 30 or 40 years. Actually, his closet in his house is filled with uh, KKK robes of members who left the KKK um, based upon his friendship with them. And he's a fascinating fella who understands this nuance of moving beyond like these polarizing categories of evil or good or, you know, bad or, or good. You know, he, he, I asked him like, how does he dwell with a K? How does he have dinner with a KKK member when he knows he's looking wow. at someone who wants him uh, to be eliminated? And he said this and, and it's still difficult to, to understand fully, but he said white supremacy is an evil, but all white supremacists are not all evil. And, you know, I'm, I struggle with that. Um, but I understand what it's allowed him to do. It's to move beyond the ideology of white supremacy towards actually dwelling with, for example, Billy Snuffer, who is a member of the KKK and he has befriended Billy. Um, and, and at the end of the day, Daryl Davis said, I'm not interested in winning arguments. I'm, win I'm interested in transformation. And that's, that's his end goal. He wants to see change. Uh, he wants to see KKK members understand and live into love. Uh, and uh, Daryl is a, is a, is a Christian, uh, former Christian pastor, um, not former Christian, but former pastor who's a Christian. And, um, he, oh, he often quotes this MLK, MLK, uh, quote where he says, people fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they don't communicate with each other and they don't communicate with each other because they're not near each other. And this dynamic of, uh, living into these clear simplistic categories that are you know help for argumentation but they don't really help on the ground um and daryl has experienced uh that because he doesn't live into those simple categories both the unite the right uh and the double and naacp have both derided daryl i mean they have both spat on him in many ways and it's because he's he refuses to live into um the either or um, I know this language makes people feel uncomfortable because it, it starts to feel like complicity um, or it starts to feel like compromise. Um, Daryl doesn't mince telling the truth, but he understands that um, 
he needs to cultivate the work of being at the table. He has to earn permission to sit down with Billy Snuffer. And you know what? I, I don't. I, I see that as inspiring. I just think it's amazing. And here's the thing: if you're a peacemaker, you're going to get caught in the crossfire sometimes, right? You're not going to make either camp happy often. And guys like that just—it's convicting, honestly. But it sounds a lot like Jesus, right? Loving your enemies, turning the other cheek. Uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and, and seeing the humanity in people beyond maybe their their beliefs or, or even actions. Uh, so I think that's beautiful. You talk, I love this phrase that you use in the book. You talk, you call Jesus the creative disruptor. And as I think about how you've described our situation, where we're really in this stalemate often, right? Where not only are we, you know, in different camps, um, ideologically, but then even steps towards any sort of rapprochement is is considered compromise <laughs> or complicity. Um, and so you're kind of in this trench warfare with each other. It, it takes some disruption. It takes something out of the ordinary. And, and of course, Jesus was a master of that. How can we do that in, in practical ways? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, and that's ultimately what's important is like how do we how do we get begin to practically um change the the dynamic between us um uh i and i this is what i think jesus was actually doing in his ministry early on in his ministry in the selection of his disciples um this is probably one of my favorite contributions in the book is studying the social political categories that the disciples were actually in that he, he drew into his into his first core um and the more i studied first century literature and looked into jo and studied josephus i started realizing that jesus purposely selected people from various political parties and from socioeconomic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds pharisees essenes sadducees the rich the poor zealots bring them into the same group um, where he would hold the space and this was sending a message that there was a there was a I think in some sense polarization that Jesus was going to start disrupting um, so the first step um, to me in following the way of Christ is actually to dis to disrupt your friend categories um, most people do live in silos. I mean, the research that came out of Gallup uh, two years ago is that 72% of progressives only have progressive friends. 78% of conservatives only have conservative friends. We are our friend our friend our friend circles are really really polarized. Um, so I like to use this language of making meals for frenemies. Um, the first step is actually to start hosting or being at the table with people that we feel some disgust or disdain with. <laughs> There's no way around it. Um, uh, this is this is the this is the table of disruption. And Jesus modeled this in his discipleship core. He also modeled it with having dinner with both the Pharisees and the prostitutes. Uh, I mean he was indiscriminate about who he dealt with. And uh, his message was more in what he modeled than what he actually said, because often when he spoke, he spoke in ambiguities and parables and, and people trying to interpret what he's up to and what he's doing. Um, but it was his actual lived practice um, with people that was creatively disrupting these categories of separation. And so uh, 
when I'm discipling people or you know speaking in 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 other spaces, I say, who is the who is the frenemy that you need to host a meal with? Um, that's the first step. Once we get into that space, we're then going to find out the emotional muscles for loving our enemies. We don't know how to listen. We don't know what to say. Uh, our our body language is horrible. Um, you know, we, we talk over them. Um, you know, we don't really know how to dwell in that space. So that, you know, that would be the second step is what does connection and dialogue look like in that space? But for me, the first step is to make meals for your frenemies. So helpful. Thank you. Yes. Bad body language, talking over people. And that, I do that with people I agree with let alone the people that I don't. Uh, <laughs> so that, uh, that's a huge challenge for sure. Um, awesome. Thank you so much, Dan. I, I just want to encourage everyone to check out this book. I don't think there's, there's you know, a lot of books have an ideal reader or a certain segment of the population that should read them. This is really something everyone in our moment in time should read. Again, it's called Love Over Fear, Facing Monsters, Befriending Enemies, and Healing Our Polarized World. Again, that's Dan White Jr. We have a segment on this show called The Big Picture. Uh, and this is just where we kind of zoom out and discuss um, a topic related to the main topic we've been discussing, loving, uh, love over fear. Um, and this is just, I just had one question for both of you. I, I hate to be the Debbie Downer here, but we've got an election, a national election coming up. Um, but well in advance of that, we'll see the political ads, we'll see the Facebook ads, we'll hear the rhetoric ramping up on both sides. Um, my question for both of you, Hannah, let's start with you, uh, would be, if you had your druthers, uh, ideally, how would you love to see Christians respond uh, as they participate in our political process um, in this next election cycle? You know, I've been thinking about this in my own behavior, especially online, trying to figure out what is a holistic, mature response. One thing I don't want to happen is I don't want people to shut down. Um, I don't want them to feel like these topics are so dangerous that we can't talk about them. Um, I think it's really important to have Christians having a variety of opinions and responses to what's happening politically. Um, so I definitely feel in my own life the temptation to just go silent. And I also know that that doesn't feel holistic to me to be completely silent. Um, I think too, I would like Christians to recognize that these conversations are best had in person, like Dan was saying. Like, I think we try to let social media do a lot of heavy lifting that it can't do. And um, I know when I'm scrolling through my feed or I see a friend or somebody's posted something that kind of, you know, I have a differing opinion about. In that moment, I can choose to attack or to avoid, right? It's that, that response of fear. And I think a lot of times we go silent and I, I feel like in some respect, going silent also means opting out of a really important dimension of growth in our relationships. Um, but it's really hard. So I think what I would hope is that our conversations would happen, but that they would happen in spaces of embodiment and respect and trust, and that we wouldn't let memes and jokes do what only 
mature, healthy conversation mm -hmm. can do. That's good. Yeah. Yes. Thank Dan. How about you? Yeah. And I love what you said in identifying as a, uh, as a mature conversation, the, the, the invitation to maturity is what is facing us as Jesus followers. Um, where most of the political dialogue that is modeled for us in culture is actually quite immature. So it's not an option between, you know, uh, lambasting someone in silence. It's actually an invitation into mature dialogue um, that I would like to see. Um, in, in my book, I lay out this, um, this mature dialogue is really, I like to use the term compassionate curiosity. And, Compassion and curiosity together create this uh, posture we have towards those we disagree with. Um, and for me, the first one is to be interested um, in compassionate curiosity. So when I'm seeing or hearing something that naturally triggers my disgust or disdain or disinterest, right? I, my first practice is to be interested. Um, Typically, when I see something I don't like, I just want to shut it down or come back at you with an argument for why you're, you know, you're an idiot um, or in, uninformed. Um, so I, I, I'd love to see more interest. Um, I'd love to see more people being inquisitive. Uh, I'd love to see people moving more towards interpersonal presence rather than disembodied presence. Um, in some sense, I think we need to create our own um, ethics around how we will engage um, rather than just sentiment that I'm just going to try to be nice. Um, I, if we don't mark these out, um, then the, 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 the force of politics is just eats us alive um, and, and colonizes us into verbal violence with each other. So for me, I've got like four different markers for how I engage on social media and for what I think it means to, to live into the differences on a Christian in my Christian community as well as in my neighborhood. And that all is summarized under compassionate curiosity. I love that, compassionate curiosity. Um, we are now, well, we're even running a little late, but that's great because I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, we have a couple more segments. Uh, everyone's favorite segment is next. Maybe it's just my favorite segment. Uh, it's called That's Odd, where we discuss kind of a, <laughs> a peculiar, uh, uh, strange sort of uh, cultural happening. Um, and this time, I want to talk about uh, the Sunday services, I think that's what they're called, that a certain artist named Kanye West is holding. So for, for people that, that may be listening to this, aren't familiar with it, uh, I'm by no means an expert, but um, I've seen a couple of these online, read about it a little bit. They're kind of these invite-only services that Kanye West, the, the popular uh, rapper, is holding. They're very celebrity-filled sort of things. Uh, but they feature a choir singing gospel songs. Um, occasionally, there is a sermon. Uh, Kanye sometimes will get up and, and kind of give his uh, spiritual musings. Um, he seems to have recently had um, a renewal in his faith, where he's very passionate about his Christian faith. Uh, but the, the events are mostly singing. Uh, I did listen to one recently where there was a, a preacher, Adam Tyson, 
who got up and he preached on Isaiah 6. And it was awesome. I listened to the whole thing. It was just amazing. It was just pure gospel. Uh, it was powerful about God's holiness, how we're not holy, and yet how, how Christ has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. Um, anyway, my question for you, too, is, well, a couple questions. Do these gatherings in your mind qualify as church? And then second, are these on balance? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, um, I guess it, it, it depends on how you would define church, you know, the ecclesia. Um, right. I, I see these more as events rather than church. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you have church if you don't have discipleship. Um, without without oh. a accountability and vulnerability to being discipled into the way of Christ, you have spiritual events, which are spiritually formative, but I don't know if that's the the heart of the church. So if they if that's happening, um, you know, I'd be surprised. But um, I think there's so much so much of our way of defining the church is really about event culture is creating events that um, that communicate a spiritual message to us rather than a um, a culture of being shaped and reformed um, in proximity with other people. So, so I mean, I applaud uh, the journey that Kanye is on. You know, if he's um, just beginning to awaken to um, the holistic gospel, you know, I'm I'm rooting for him. Um, but I don't know if I could qualify what he's doing as as church. Um, you know, I, I get this all the time, you know, uh, and I love you too. I love the band you too. Um, but I have friends that have gone to you two concerts and they're like, you know, if that's what church was like every week, then I would go, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, well, so you're saying a church was like a concert and, and you love the band and the speaker spoke things. If yeah. And, budget, um, you know, right. and, yeah. and everybody was already fans of the music, you know, it, and what 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 my friends are saying is uh, they're looking for a, a spiritually they're looking for this kind of spirit experience, um, but I just think that church is much much deeper and defined differently than than by Jesus than just attending an event. I don't even know if Jesus would have said that feeding of the five thousand was what he intended as the whole church. Um, so, you know, that's where I can get a little controversial. I worked this out a little bit in church as movement, but I just think we've lost uh, the heart of the church, which is discipleship. Um, and events and other things that come off of discipleship are really important to our formation. But so that's, you know, that's my curmudgeon. That's my curmudgeon no, response. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense. Hannah, are you going to set them straight? No, I was going to say even the question of whether this is church is probably a question only evangelicals can ask because we have a tradition of, you know, a more low church tradition where it is more linked to personal awakening, personal reformation. Um, and so we begin to define um, an experience of church as a spiritual experience, like you said, Dan. So then we get a little fuzzy, like, oh, I had a spiritual experience. Was that a church experience? No, that was just a spiritual experience. And you happen to be with other people having a spiritual event together. Um, I think for people who come from more high church backgrounds, um, who designate the church more based on the presence of sacrament, 
or um, formal structure, there's no way they're going to confuse a gathering as the church. And now you can get into which of those is more biblical or more holistic, whether a low church approach or a high church approach uh, better reflects the testimony of scripture. Um, but at the end of the day, I think this is something that we uniquely, and maybe even within Western culture as evangelicals, um, can't always distinguish between a spiritual event and what's happening in the church. As far as whether it's a good thing or I would say it's not an unusual thing. I don't think it's an unusual thing for um, high profile artists to have spiritual awakenings. I mean, we think it's unusual because we don't see it as much. But if you look at the record of history, there's all kinds of stories and um, testimonies of high profile artists suddenly coming into awakening. And this is going to sound a little obscure and abstract, but when I first heard the news um, about Kanye's progression, it triggered a memory of hearing about the early Renaissance artist Botticelli. And he um, had devoted a tremendous amount of his early work to pagan mythologies. And Savonarola comes to town and the whole town has this like awakening. Now this would have been within the structures of the Roman Catholic Church and you know early Renaissance. And after that, Botticelli begins to do a whole lot more religious art and dedicate his art to that. Now there's question of whether did the power just shift and Botticelli went after what was on the rise? You know, religion was on the rise and so he went after it or whether he had a true awakening. But I don't think it's it shouldn't surprise us to see high-profile people having awakenings or being drawn toward dedicating their art to more spiritual space. I think we're kind of cynical sometimes of it. We don't know whether it's true, and I would say it's not really our job to find out whether it's true. Um, it's to let it play out um, and see how it happens, but it is happening in the public eye. And so I think it surprises us, um, but maybe it's not as unusual as we think it is. Yeah, no, that's, that's such good wisdom too, to let it play out. Um, cause as I've seen the reactions online, I, I've kind of found myself somewhere in the middle, right? Cause you see people just bashing on it and going, he's not a real Christian. And I go, how do you know? It seems pretty legitimate that he's had this, uh, fluorescence in his faith or, conversion. I don't know exactly about his prior uh, spiritual journey, uh, but it sure seems legitimate to me. And then when I hear the gospel being proclaimed at these events, I think, great. On the other hand, I kind of, I hear what you're saying, uh, both of you, about the event-based nature of it. I don't think it qualifies as church, um, at least in the broader definition, right? When you talk about even, well, even if you go for sort of a bare bones ecclesiology from Acts, they met for the apostles' teaching for the breaking of bread and for prayer. <laughs> and ostensibly, there's not a lot of that happening. And then, of course, you've got the elitism aspect where it's mostly uh, celebrities coming, and that I kind of chafe against that. But on the other hand, I go, well, let's not bash on him. He's in his context doing his thing, trying to praise God. And I got to admit, when I listen to these, these Sunday services, I've listened to a couple, and you go, wow, obviously the music's incredible. 
uh, and and hear the gospel. Hey, it's great. More power to him. Yeah, maybe let's not call it church. Now, I will say this. If I get an invite to one of these, then I'll change my mind and say it's totally cool. It's totally church, and I'm on board. Uh, <laughs> totally joking. Um, okay, last thing. Uh, Dan, um, I wanted to ask you, this is something we do on the podcast uh, because it is about books. You know, we, we believe that God uses the written word to change people, not just through his word, but through the things that we write, the things that we encounter on the page. Um, and I'm just wondering um, if you can tell listeners about a book that made a major impact on your thought and life. And I always tell people, you right, can't right. say the Bible, because yes. that's just a, that's a Jesus juke, right? Where you just kind of sound spiritual by saying, oh, the Bible or Jesus. Uh, and oh, and let us a, know, why did it make such an impression a good on one. you? Um, you know, I, I'd have to go with, well, just because it's fresh in my mind, but it, it did have a significant influence on me is um, Christine Pohl's book, Living Into Community. Um, I'm not sure if you've read it or heard of that book, but um, it's a powerful uh, exposition no, I'm it down on right now. Um, cultivating praxis, healthy practices within community. Um, I actually just got to meet her for the first time last week and uh, just found her to be so uh, rooted and uh, deep and um, a powerful presence. And she, in that book, she works through um, four markers in community, embracing gratitude, making promises, telling the truth, and practicing hospitality. And, you know, I remember reading that book. I just felt like she was diving deeper on Bonhoeffer's work in Life Together. I, I just felt like she was just double-clicking and going further um, with expanding on his work. And uh, so for me, that was a that was a formative book on recapturing my imagination for what church together could look like. Um, and she's dealing with some sense actually with our differences. Uh, so there's a lot of idealism around community. Uh, and so she's helping us kind of dismantle that idealism and work through these really rich uh, practices. So um, big fan of uh, Christine Pohl's book, Living into Community. That's great. Thank you for the recommendation. And it ties in nicely to what we've been talking about, too. Uh, because if we're going to have those face-to-face -face, uh, conversations, we need to know how to do that in community. Um, well, we're at the end of our time. Thanks to both of you uh, for, for being with us, especially you, Hannah. We're at the end. I can't believe it. We're already four episodes in. That's the end of season one. Hannah graciously agreed to join me as co-host for our first season and she's just done a terrific job. When, it was funny when we sat around at Moody Publishers and said, okay, who do we want for the first co-host for this season? Like almost everyone at once was like, Hannah. And, <laughs> and, and we were so glad that she agreed to do it. Hannah, thank you so much for being with us for these four episodes. I know it's a huge commitment, um, but we've really appreciated it. Well, I've enjoyed every minute of it, Drew. Thank you. And we'll have you back on because I know you keep writing and and we love talking to you. Um, next time, quick preview of what we're going to be talking about. In some ways, it's going to be a continuation of this conversation we've been having. Uh, we're going to be talking to my buddy, Brandon O'Brien. Uh, he has a book that just came out called Not From Around Here, What Unites Us, What Divides Us, and How 
we can move forward. It's an excellent book, and you can see the tie-in to what we've been talking about. Uh, it's kind of a unique book because it's it's partly nonfiction, partly mem- memoir uh, about his experience of growing up in the rural South and then now living in New York City and talking about how regional differences such make such a huge impact uh, and yet how, as followers of Christ, we have far more in common than we do uh, that is different. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. Join us for that. And in the meantime, keep reading. Thank you.